this is an installation of the Ferris Center Events podcast series brought to you by the Ferris Center for Eastern Mediterranean Studies at the Fletcher School at Tufts University. Good evening and welcome everybody. This is um, this is an experiment in the in that we are starting a series of podcasts at the Ferris Center. Uh, part of the, uh, the uh, podcast, podcast series which includes our, our events, but this one is a specially made conversation uh, which is the idea of two people. Uh, we, we have Nasreen Hajj Ahmad who came up with the idea and, and uh, Benjamin Naimar Kraus who, who, who proposed it. And so before I pass it to them, I'd like to thank them, of course, and we have amazing panelists to, to, to open the subject, so um, we'll start. Okay. Um, thank you, Nadine, um, and thank you for, for joining. Um, I'm a, a Ben Neymar Grouse, and uh, I teach and research and study nonviolent resistance here, here at the Fletcher School. Um, and this, this sort of discussion, protecting democracy, lessons from Tunisia and Egypt, sort of emerged in two ways. One was this conversation um, uh, with Ms. Reen, another was sort of the reflection that for, for folks who have um, lived under authoritarian regimes, recent developments in the U.S. have, have been somewhat familiar. Um, yet for, for many Americans, um, the talk of rigged elections and fake news and alternative facts and um, authoritarianism at home is, is somewhat uh, surprising or familiar. Many Americans maybe don't um, uh, want to admit some of the, or, or even recognize some of the, the changes that, that we've seen over the last um, six months or so. And so the idea was that we could, while they're here in, um, in the Boston area, we could take advantage of this fact that um, Nadia Marzuki and, and Ezzedine Fischer are, are here and, and can reflect on their own teaching, their own um, research, their own uh, time growing up in, um, in Tunisia and, and Egypt and draw some lessons um, from those two countries that we could apply to U.S. foreign policy towards the region, but perhaps more interestingly um, to, to how Americans, how people living in the United States now um, might respond to, to changes in norms and orders here in the U.S. and, um, and, and abroad. So I'll give a quick, uh, just brief introduction uh, bios for our three speakers. Um, and then we'll, we'll dive in. Um, so so uh, Professor Fischer um, is a diplomat, a retired diplomat, um, <laughs> a novelist, professor, um, uh, did his, his PhD at the University of Montreal in political science, has, has worked at the National Crisis Group, served as a policy advisor to the Egyptian foreign minister, senior advisor to a number of UN missions. Um, so deep experience reflecting from sort of culture, politics, um, um, policy, and um, spending this year and perhaps a bit longer at, at Dartmouth. So we welcome welcome you to the, to the you. Ferris Center. Um, and Nadia Marzuki, um, who's spending spending this year at, at Harvard's Ash Center and the Belfer Center. Um, she's uh, did her PhD in political science at Sciences Po. Um, and has served as a research fellow at the uh, National Center for Scientific Research in Paris and consultant um, for Relig Religio West. Has written on um, 
religion in the Middle East and, and elsewhere, intersection of, of um, religion and politics, religious conversations in the Mediterranean world is one of, one of her books. So we welcome you also to the Ferris Center. Um, and Sarah Detzner, um, who's a Ferris Center fellow and a provost fellow here at the, at the Fletcher School previously held positions in um, the Obama campaign and in, in the Defense Department with Secretary Gates um, to offer some, some thoughts and reactions to sort of these experiences from Egypt and Tunisia, how they, they are sort of reflected um, and reacted to from sort of within U.S. bureaucracy and um, within the U.S. Um, so I just start off by sort of posing a, posing a question, particularly for Nadia and, and Ezzedine, that um, you've You've been in the U.S. at a particularly tumultuous time, and I'd, I'd just love to hear your sort of reactions personally and um, sort of politically for for how you felt being here over the last last sort of six months or so. What you've seen, um, if there are any sort of similarities, differences to to what you've studied and, and experienced previously. And as you uh, organizing this conversation, I think it's uh, very. Um, important conversation to have that uh, there hasn't been so much uh, discussion yet on the on the conditions uh, the comparison between the rise of authoritarianism in the MENA region and in uh, the rise of populism in in the West. So I hope we can figure out some ways to address this question uh, today. Um, indeed, for me, it was interesting having having um, lived. Uh, through the experience of the transition in Tunisia and the, the 2014 elections to be uh, here uh, over the fall and uh, witness all the debates around populism and um, the notion that authoritarianism a la Erdogan was maybe um, uh, surfacing in the US. And uh, I mean, Looking at the the response of the of a number of academics and intellectuals and the people to the election of Trump, um, a few comparisons with what had happened to Tunisia um, after the election of President Bejaqaide Sebsi in 2014 came to mind, uh, and also the election of Mahda in 2011. Um, for one, I thought that what was strikingly comparable was the polarization of the public in uh, Tunisia and uh, in the US. I mean, the, the polarization of the media, of the public, and of society that was made uh, very real and very visible by this outcome. So I thought that was uh, something to think about. Uh, the other thing that made me, um, that I found a bit ironical and intriguing is the focus on um, gender rights. So uh, it's interesting how after uh, Nahda, the Islamist party was elected, in, was victorious in the constitutional assembly election in 2011, everyone was really worried that uh, Nahda would, would not respect gender rights and uh, that this would have a terrible impact on uh, women's rights and gender equality. And it's interesting to see how this was also one of the major response to Trump's election. Um, my, my, one of my, um, my thoughts after, after November was that, yes, this was terrifying, the election of Trump, but that maybe we should operate the same degree of uh, prudence towards his election uh, 
as the as towards the election of Islamists in Tunisia and I guess in Egypt. And uh, one argument that was made at the time for the MENA region was that yes, liberals and a significant part of the left hate Islamists. However, they should accept that this is a necessary evil uh, in order to um, go through the democratic process and that inclusion of a political actor that we hate is, at the end of the day, uh, the best option to um, maintain democracy. So I thought maybe this is what should happen with Trumpism, and that uh, no matter how much we fear this phenomenon, this is also inclusion at the end of the day is the only, only option. Um, however, there's an important difference, uh, and I guess maybe Tunisia is more advanced than the US in that respect, I mean Islamism towards Trumpism, uh, for one major reason is that uh, Islamists in Tunisia have proven incredibly pragmatic and willing to mainstream, to become a mainstream party, uh, willing to make compromises. And that doesn't seem to be the case with Trumpism, whatever that, that is. But so the will to moderate and the will to make compromise and the will to integrate that is very, very present in the strategy of Mahda since 2011, maybe not so much in the case of the brothers, and I'd be curious to hear what you think, but in Tunisia, this is a key element of the strategy. This is, so in a way that makes maybe the, the comparison uh, different. And um, another interesting difference, I think, that also maybe made Tunisia in a way more advanced is that, um, the, the, in the 2014 elections, the candidate that lost the election recognized the defeat uh, and did not threaten to, to uh, stage a civil war against the other side, whereas this, this fear was very present uh, in the US elections. And I think this is a very strange, uh, after so many years of democratic tradition in the US, to have, uh, again, this fear of turning your political adversary into an existential enemy. And this is something that we've, 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 we went beyond, we are now beyond this point in Tunisia, hopefully it stays this way, and it seems that in the US, after all these decades of democracy, with all the calls by Donald Trump that he would stage a war and didn't, would not recognize the results of the, of the election if he, if he lost, I thought that was an interesting also comparison. So yeah, these are just some remarks, but happy to hear other thoughts. What you're asking about the reaction, right, to the mm -hmm. election. But the, in my case, when uh, Dartmouth uh, asked me if I were interested in coming to teach for a year, um, I immediately said yes, and mainly because I've been in Egypt for the last uh, 10 years, and the last six years have been very tiring in, in terms of political upheavals, and I was sick and tired of the bad faith of political players, the fake news, the mutual accusations, the constant distortions of narratives, and all of that. So when, when I got the invitation, I said, yes, by all means. And then Trump got elected. <laughs> so um, the chair of the department and I were kind of having a drink, and she's like, what are we going to do with this? And what I did personally is I stopped, um, I discontinued my New York Times um, subscription. I disconnected from all kind of news media, fake and not so fake. And I focused on teaching for about two months without, with a careful kind of attempt not to see or hear uh, something that says President Trump uh, in it. 
Um, then, you know, the two months are over, and then I kind of reconcile to the fact that um, democracy or democratization is fragile. It has always been fragile, even in the most, even in its strongest holds, it is still um, always a work in progress and something that it's an ideal more than a reality. And the U.S. is no different. So I guess it's, it's not about the geographic location. Um, it's just um, there, there is clearly something that is happening worldwide that is endangering democratic ideals now. And uh, there's no point changing um, a country of residence again, because where would I go then, France? <laughs> Fair enough. Um, so I, I, I want to pick up on this, this um, one of these last points that you made about that there, there have always been sort of critics of, of democracy, right? There, there have always been sort of alternatives out there to different, whether it's authoritarianism or socialism or um, they're, they're very different variants. But one of the things that um, I think sort of is most notable to observers in the U.S. right is that is that this the Trump administration has has gone after institutions, sort of as, as you mentioned, saying you know not going to respect the outcome of the, of the election if necessarily, and um, and and so I'm I'm wondering if you could you could also say say a few words about. Um, the importance of defending institutions and how you see individual citizens and those who are within government here or in Tunisia and Egypt, um, things that they, how you see them defending institutions. What are, what are the roles, what are responsibilities um, and, and risks? Mm. What do you want to start? Okay. Well, I think the issue of institutions bring with it also the question of, uh, of ground rules. Is the democratic institutions function through a set of rules that are binding for all political players? And this is what reassures players who are outside of government that the fact that they're outside of government is not an existential threat, that they can come back, that the rules are transparent enough for the political conflict to be conducted according to these rules, and that would offer them that possibility to come back. Now, these rules, the, the trouble is that for democratic institutions to function properly, the players have to actively want to respect the rules and not be spending their time trying to circumvent or avoid or distort the rules. Because once they are in this spirit, the other competitors, the other political players usually kind of imitate them, and then the whole political game goes down. Which means that democratic institutions rely not on constitutions only, not on the written rules, but also on shared values and norms among the players. And of course, those shared norms and values rely on political power, on the power of the constituency that upheld those uh, norms and values. But the political players have to be able to articulate and represent and express those and um, demonstrate their compliance with those norms and values in their behavior in a clear way so that you don't have to go back and question and fight over those norms and values and rules every time. The problem with whether you call them out, maybe outside players, outside of the democratic ideal, outside players in this sense, is that they do not share those values or norms 
Quite the contrary, they're very happy to challenge them and denigrate them. Of course, again, not all political, most of political players from time to time break the rules, but at least they don't go publicly and say, oh, those rules don't count. Outside players do that, and they build part of their appeal on denigrating those norms and values as irrelevant, as what have those rules and values done to you, you the ordinary citizen, and so on. This was a problem with Islamists, and this is a problem here too, is you come based on those basic norms and values, you expect other players to respect you, respect your right to participate in the political process and to abide by results, while you yourself aren't prepared to do the same. I think it's been really interesting and extremely worrying, but you have to step back from it a little bit. Um, to the extent to which, um, so basically the Democrats are out for the count. Not forever, I don't want to say that, but um, you have a situation now where Donald Trump is president, so there's the executive branch, and the legislative branch is also controlled by Republicans. There's a political situation where I feel like someone who relies on a narrative of having a major enemy has been forced to create one, and that enemy is institutions. Um, because you can't be the other party, which is the traditional way of doing this, because it's too clear that the other party has no real power. I mean, you're seeing a little bit of an attempt with going after ex-President Obama, um, but I think we can all see that that hasn't really taken. Um, so that is very worrying to me, because I understand that he feels he needs to do this to keep his political mojo running. Um, but I mean, when you look at it, President Trump's greatest reversals so far have been handed to him by institutions, which only reinforce this cycle. Um, you have the travel ban that was reversed by the courts, um, and courts that were both Republican and Democratic appointees. Um, healthcare right now is being teared apart, torn apart by the institution that is the House of Representatives and the Senate, because it turns out they're like that all the time, regardless of <laughs> your party might be in power, but that's not going to change the uh, complicated uh, interface there. Um, and there's also our. Um, are decentralized institutions. You're seeing a lot of pushback in cities, in states. A lot of this is coming from places where the Democrats are in control, but the powers that they have to push back are institutionally set up that way so that there won't be that kind of concentration at the federal level. So I'm very concerned right now because I don't really see him being able to move away from this. He has to engage in this dangerous activity uh, that you just talked about, attacking the system itself, because that's what he has to attack. And if he doesn't have something to attack, I mean, that's that's his game. Yeah, I mean, I want to follow up on, on Sarah's um, remarks, and um, I think as much as I, I was supporting this uh, argument that there is something of a globalization of um, an authoritarian trend, we have to be careful about how we how we compare things um, because there is clearly a, a sort of simulacrum of like you know Trump imitating Erdogan, who imitates Putin, who imitates Sisi, and so on and so forth. However, um, it's important to be nuanced in how we handle this narrative because it it also creates a sense of like uh, fatality that there's like this global trend. 
that it's inescapable and that it, it just happens. That there, as if there is like this fatality of will, popular will for authoritarian rule. And uh, one, it's important to keep in mind that institutions have a different history. And as you said, the courts in the US have played an exemplary role in fighting back and will continue to do so. And they don't have the same power, nor the same independence in Tunisia, Egypt, or Turkey. Um, and uh, also, I think it's important to keep in mind the, the agency of like individuals for good or for bad purposes. So uh, Ben, you can speak better than, than us about the role of individuals in protests and in organizing civil resistance, but also the role of individuals in like channeling funds, for example, from one country to another to support the right-wing networks. Uh, and so, for example, the, the U some U.S. groups are funding groups from the right wing in France and uh, also, I mean, my point is that this role for authoritarianism doesn't just happen, it's created, it's manufactured, and it's, it's, uh, um, it's manufactured by specific groups that have to be uh, unmasked. Um, so this notion that there is a global trend towards authoritarianism can can yeah have a double-edged effect and can sort of create this uh, sense of uh, fate, negative fate that I think we have to to reject. Um, then I just wanted to say something about uh, institutions versus uh, values, and uh, I think yes, yes, institutions are key right now in the U.S. Uh, to fight back against the, the exclusionary policy of Trump. But there is also the, the question of the other side, the side that's lost, and that is now organizing resistance. And it's very intriguing to see how the values in the name of which they organize this resistance are a bit uh, undefined. So uh, we've seen in the recent protests against the travel ban, against Islamophobia, against uh, uh, the, the policy against refugees, we've seen a sort of civic ecumenism, like with people from different faith communities fighting together, protesting together. And this is in a way reassuring, but I, I seem to, I, I am a bit concerned and um, yeah, astonished by the fact that they are not able to name or to define clearly what is it that they're fighting for. So they do use the expression, we are defending our values, but they never define these values. Whereas the other side is very, very, has no complex in defining the, 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 the key terms of what it is that they're fighting for. Um, and um, I think this also speaks to a broader trend of the failure of the left throughout the world, not just in the US, but in Europe, in, the, in North Africa, in the Middle East. And um, this, this sort of, um, divide that keeps coming back between identity politics and social justice and the fact that the left is not able to reconcile these two uh, these two projects um, and uh, figure out define describe values that sort of speaks to these two to these two um, to these two projects so um, I mean as academics we've all uh, been in, interested in the stance that our, our universities have taken against the executive order, and I've read actually a number of the statements made by deans of different universities, and all of them have, most of them, I think, uh, have 
severely rejected the ban. And it's interesting because in the statement, they always uh, bring about the justification of like values, but which values we don't know. What's, what's annoying and strange is that this inability to craft like a political discourse that actually define the values. And, and this will be my, my last point, and maybe I'm just gonna throw a bomb out there. I think that the big elephant in the room here is Islam. And it's just there's like this inability to address the fact that uh, to decide to define whether or not the West, whatever that means, is going to conceptually and morally accept Islam as, as, as an entity that is part of um, the Western identity. And so I think this is something that at some point will have to be addressed in all these protests. So. Thank you. Um, so I may just ask one follow-up question and then, then we'll go out to questions um, or brief comments from, from everyone everyone here joining us. Um, so one, one reflection on sort of conservatives in, in the US is that at, at zero-sum moments, whether it's elections or otherwise, um, the right tends to line up behind a, a goal or an, or an ideology or a candidate Whereas on the on the left on the progressive and the progressive side in the U.S., there, that's much harder to do, right? Because the, the the identity, the belief is is less so a hierarchical sort of top-down structure, more of a of a, a respect for diversity and different opinions, and and so in a certain sense, one could argue that that the, that the identity of progressives, particularly in the U.S., is one that is always going to be harder to to. Um, uh, come to a shared view that folks can get behind um, at these zero-sum moments. And so um, so I'm, I'm wondering if you could, all three of you could briefly sort of reflect on that and, and, and answer the questions of is the, what lessons can we look towards where proponents of democracy, diversity, um, social justice have been able to um, come together behind a shared sort of goal, positive goal, not just a, a negative one? Well, I, I'm going to be a bit provocative and say I think the question, posing the question in terms of identity makes the problem bigger, not smaller. And it's one, I think, of the problems that we're, in, we're facing in the United States and also in Egypt and so on. Um, so I want to take a step back before, you know, the question of mobilizing our forces versus the mobilization of their forces. And go back to the basic idea that democracy is a system of governance. So it is not just a series of ideas about freedom and so on. And if you cannot convince a majority that this system of governance is going to address their most important concerns, it's not, don't be surprised that they vote for the other side, right? Now, in a situation of polarization, especially in a situation where norms and values are being questioned, you can go back to fighting over norms and values and fighting over identity, which is a way to go, but it will make the zero-sum conflict more so. Or the other way around, which is much more difficult, is to shift the conversation to the governance issues. So instead of the question about me versus you, the question becomes, what 
what is it? How are you going to address those issues? So we have, I don't know, white collars, blue collars, unemployment, uh, the rusty belts, whatever the question is. How are you going to address this? Regardless of the rhetoric about I am more inclusive, you're less inclusive. And if you shift the conversation to the issues of governance, so the conversation becomes a conversation about governance of actual concerns. I think, one, you can transcend the partisan lines and the identity kind of issues. And two, you, you rationalize the public debate and you calm down this vicious reaction that people have to this line of question. But it's easier said than done. That's the problem. Um, this is a, a hard one to answer in part because I think we're all dealing with slightly different vocabularies based on our, our backgrounds. My personal response to this is the only way that you make concrete progress in the United States, um, the way that we have on previous big social issues or other changes. Um, one of the great things about the American identity is that um, it isn't, I know it's a cliche, but it isn't rooted in a particular background. It's always been a question of ideas. Yeah. And people expand or contract that as necessary, which gives us a certain malleability. So if you can convince people that what it means to really be an American is to believe X, yeah, that's how we've gotten there in the past. Yeah. Shambling, I'm thinking particularly the civil rights movement, but I could bring other things into it. Yeah. A big part of that is to break down, how, by whatever means, the partisan divide. I think it's actually a, it's, it's something I worry about the strong polarization that we're seeing now, because when you know that a quote-unquote leftist idea, or an idea that was leftist 10 years ago, but is on the verge of breaking through, is getting there, is when you start winning over your uncle in Connecticut, the moderate Republican. Um, and people start thinking that it's a little embarrassing not to believe something and that it's a little un-American and it, you know, it makes you seem like those extremists in whatever foreign place. Sorry, the whole rest of the world, you're really useful to us that way. <laughs> <laughs> this whole city on a hill, we're more enlightened, we have it more together. Um, so that's how I think we get it through. How you shift that idea of what it means, I think a really important thing that you brought up for the American context is that we tend to, to build from the ground up. So if you can make it not just about practical governance issues, but practical governance issues at the extremely local level, um, that's how we mm -hmm. achieve that kind of absorption. You know, I mean, you can believe whatever in the abstract, but you know, you're not going to be, only the very worst people can be mean to that adorable little Syrian refugee girl right there in front of them in their community center. Um, and so it's why I love a decentralized system. Um, yeah, I mean, um, if we follow with the analogy that Trump's election is sort of the Arab, Arab Spring hub of the US, I guess based on the, on the Tunisian experience and, and following up on Sarah's remarks about the polarization, I would say that one of the challenges is, yeah, how to reconcile these two parts of society and how, how can you um, how, how can you build a democratic future without, at some point, uh, politicians addressing the need for, uh, at the local level, for reconciliation between these, this, these two divided parts of society? And I think this is, um, 
uh, this is something, I mean, it could be the case that what we witness right now in the US is in a way the, the outcome or the expression of wounds and device that go back to the civil war or something like this. this it seems that there, there's a trauma that, that is unresolved in terms of how two different parts of American society define mm -hmm. the meaning of democracy, political community. Uh, this is an argument that uh, historian James Kloppenberg has made recently that this, this is just a continuation of the same debate since 18th century. And um, it doesn't seem that there is a that there is an, a project like maybe maybe the U.S. needs a truth and dignity or reconciliation commission or something to address these these dramas of the past uh, related to race and civil war and uh, so that that seems uh, to be a major uh, challenge and just one last thing to to answer your comment about the fact that uh, the left and progressives are by definition plural and this is this is how they operate and it has to be respected i fully agree my point was was about the fact that they are avoiding politics they they are focusing on sort of empty rhetorics of value procedures facts and expertise and caricature their opponent by the, as being post factual i mean which he is but um, but they focus on this and the point is not for the left to stop being pluralistic. The point is for, for the left and liberals to endorse uh, the fact that they have to repoliticize conflicts instead of constantly avoiding it, and that they have to make normative commitments and normative claims and, and propose a comprehensive worldview. Because um, I think what happens now is also the consequence of, um, of this sort of pragmatism and cynicism that defined the approach of the Obama left. Uh, and people seem to want and need something more, something that is a sort of comprehensive, normative view of how the world operates. They, they don't want just pragmatism, they want meanings. And I don't see why the left wouldn't be able to articulate such a, such a view. I'd, I'd love to hear your, I'm sure you had questions when you thought of this, this, this panel um, right, and, and yeah. reflections as well. Yeah, and some of them I think have been addressed already in the conversation. I just want to pose a point and seek your reaction to it. And it's the economic dimension of the whole equation. So, Yes, the progressive left or the left is has failed um, here in other countries. Um, and it is a question of identity for sure, but it's also very much a question of economic alternative. So that's where I think the failure is in presenting an economic alternative um, to uh, what has been the case for the past 20 years and it's, fa it's failed globally. So I'm interested in your reaction to that dimension, but also with comparison to Egypt and Tunisia. I know it's a different ballgame and different structure of economy and not comparable, but that played a big role in the revolutions um, and in the winning of, I'm not, I think they, they uh, ran on jobs agenda. Same thing with Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt. And I think that that's at the core of the, for me, that's one of the issues at the core of the discussion. If we can talk about that um, a little bit. And um, 
The second point, um, I find, and that's why when I thought about this um, event, I found that there are some interesting differences between how the Muslim Brotherhood was handled and dealt with in Tunisia and how it was handled and dealt with in, in Egypt. And in the difference, I, I feel, lies uh, an important lesson for here and elsewhere. I thought that after the assassinations in Tunisia, mm -hmm. it was uh, a turning point or it was an important critical point in the history of Tunis. And it could have gone in another way. It could have mm -hmm. gone the Egyptian way, let's say, or where, um, where um, there's enough, there was enough energy, I thought, to oust uh, al at that point. And yet, I felt there was some sort of social popular understanding that not yet we're going to commit to this process. While in Egypt, I don't think that was the case. So that difference for me says a lot, but I'm not sure exactly what it says. So if you can elaborate on that. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll answer one question and kind of dodge the other question. <laughs> uh, so the, uh, I think um, the question about the economic dimension is crucial. And uh, all comparisons are flawed in a way. But if you think of the last time we had a comparable rise in fascism and semi-fascist movements worldwide, um, the 1930s, were also times of economic upheavals that are comparable to this one. Whether it's globalization and its consequences or what Carl Polanyi described in his Great Transformation back then, it's about how the market escapes the control of society and actually becomes the controller of society and how the <coughs> important social segments panic and the only thing they can fall back on is the state in order to kind of embed the market again, bring it under control. I think there is a lot of resonance with what's happening um, in the world today, not just uh, in Europe or in the United States or North Africa, but probably in all of these. Um, then each one would, would offer a different um, scenario depending on its position in, in the global economy. So the situation in Egypt is definitely different, but the millions of people who took to the streets, those millions, they asked for bread, not just dignity. So they wanted both. And when they had a choice, they opted for the bread, not for the freedoms, um, you know, a few years later. So again, and this is why, you know, I, I want to re-emphasize my point that democracy is not just a series of ideas, it's also a system of governance. And it's a system of governance that relies on majority's consent. If you lose the consent because people are dissatisfied, because you are become victim of an establishment, because you can't break, because you can't close the gaps between rich and poor, quite the contrary. And you're perceived by the majority as part of this corrupting, alienating system, they will turn against you and your ideas if necessary. And this is something I think Democrats have to remember. Um, I mean, I always, when, when I'm asked about um, Tunisian Islamists, um, I like to tell this anecdote of a workshop we organized um, in <coughs> March 2012 with um, people from the Egyptian brothers and people from Mahda and people from the Tunisian unions and left and um, at the end of the workshop the guys from the Muslim brothers were looking at Mahdawi and they were like you're not Islamists 
they were they were like you're you're like conservative maybe but you're you're way too pragmatic and compromise oriented so i mean these these groups come from a same tradition maybe but they've they've have very different intellectual trajectories so um to explain what happened in tunisia and and i'm not sure how this is actually relevant to to the u.s experience i would say that egypt with its strong military and is, is maybe a better uh comparison uh but tunisia i think is a combination of political history which is defined by a long tradition of collaboration between Islamists and uh, secularists throughout the years of the Ben Ali era. Uh, one thing he did, uh, he, he, he did a great service to opponents in, in that he brought them together in exile or in jails. They all started to work together and uh, establish alliances. So the political history since the 1970s and more specifically since the beginning of the years 2000 has been key in already starting conversations and the compromise that were reached after 2011 are in a way just the sort of actualization of these uh, earlier compromises. And the second thing is uh, what I call balance of powerlessness. In, in, in this is very different from Egypt is that in Tunisia after 2011 no political group no institution is strong enough to capture the power and to have a hegemonic strategy. The military is too weak, the police is, is weakened. Uh, Islamists win in 2011, but they don't have a strong majority, so they need allies. Uh, the Ancien Régime is still present, but is weakened. So everyone is weakened, weakened, and needs the other. So negotiation is the only game in town. They have no choice, because otherwise everyone collapses. So it's sort of like the rational thing to do. But I don't want to have just this cynical explanation. I also think there is a commitment to democracy genuinely from the from the main actors. Uh, so the combination of all these factors, I think, helps to explain why, uh, even though um, in a way Tunisia was sort of dancing on the cliff throughout the process, but the car never never fell because at the last minute everyone collectively collectively always managed to make the rational decision. Um, but this situation of balance of powerlessness doesn't describe the situation in the U.S. I think you know there are strong institutions, a strong military, a strong tradition of democratic institutions. So, um, yeah, from that perspective, I'm not sure how Tunisia is helpful. It's yes. I wanted to just uh, throw a few points to bring it back to bring back the discussion mm -hmm. to the United States. Uh, uh, which was one of the one of the components. So I mean, I'm from I'm from Lebanon. It's the country that gave polarization its name. They used to call it Lebanonization before, but I'm I've never seen polarization as extreme as the one I've seen in in, in the U.S. Here, there's there's there is absolutely no contact almost, and there is, the, the, even the media is polarized. And there is lack of conversation between between the two sides. They just demonize each other, uh, almost dehumanize each other. And uh, so I find what Sarah said very very interesting because if you're battling for ideals, then you have the high moral ground, and it's almost like a Puritan objective. You are here to establish, like the Puritans, uh, the kingdom of heaven on earth. 
and you're the beacon on the hill, and anyone who's against that is demonic. So, so, so there is. So I've seen that demonization happening uh, and building up the, the image of the other on both on both sides, without a a, mid, a middle ground. But they both think of the other as the extreme of what they fear, rather than recognize that there are two points of views, which could be both correct, and we have to compromise between the two, which is what we do in, in, in the Middle East, or in Lebanon at least. It, it, would, never, it would never occur to me uh, to enter a university auditorium in Beirut and find that everyone agreed on, on one position. There, there's always a debate. It's not, it's not always pleasant. It could be, it could be uh, very uh, harsh, but it's always there. Right? Whereas the, the consensus I see in both sides here is, is, is sort of what frightens me more. And as an outsider, I didn't understand it well before because I didn't have the same baggage. So there's no bag. I don't have the background of having to fight for equality and uh, uh, you know um, African American rights and women's rights and, and, and all that. So it's all connected to we've been building this kingdom of heaven on earth, and the devil is coming to destroy it. And we've been so I think that's part of the of how I try to understand the polarization, uh, which I find fascinating. Uh, and w w one, one last thing, since we are at, Fle at the Fletcher School, I think two questions which arise from uh, Fletcher is one which someone like Dan Dresner would ask, which is, is the system working? Would the system work to protect the United States from collapse? And I see that it is. I see that the system has been successful <coughs> in, in putting checks and balances on, on both sides, in, 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 in a way. And the other one is about the parallel state, which someone like uh, uh, Michael Glennon would, 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 would arise. And, and here I see the parallel state fighting the insurgency. So, so if you want to, to make the comparison, um, um, Donald Trump is Morsi here in this in this story, and and uh, he's being fought by the establishment, which eventually drove Morsi back out and put him in prison and re and re re regained control. So will the system here have enough checks and balances, and will they work enough to protect? A democratically elected. Um, uh, I'm, I know I'm making him sound like the victim here, mm -hmm. but this is our seat. Yeah. <laughs> so, that, that, so will the system work? Will the battle? <coughs> yes. Well, I know that the bomb was thrown for my benefit, maybe yes. <laughs> for everybody's. But yes. um, I will ask, as I've asked you personally before, what establishment? Uh, when you yeah. compare the the oligarchy in Egypt, frankly the level of agreement that you have to what you have in the United States. I mean, if you've actually, if you've actually worked in American government, um, what you have is a series of agreements on a system of rules with certain boundaries. And people on both sides get very upset when those rules are broken, especially the people who are most invested. Um, so, if you look at what's happening to Donald Trump, um, and this is what I was saying earlier with institutions, um, if you try to make institu bipartisan institutions your enemy, they will push back. 
Yeah. No, absolutely. Um, because we've all agreed to this system of rules and we've abided by them for a period of time. I think one interesting thing that I, I see happening that I worry about a little bit, well, I worry all the time now, <laughs> like so many of us. The reason I say what establishment is because if you look at the U.S. government, you have your career folks who've been there forever. Um, and frankly, especially in D.C., they're not strongly partisan one way or the other. Um, you have your uh, appointees, like me, and the role of the appointees, and there are about three or 4,000, is to make sure that the agencies are pursuing the president's overall goals. But the complicated interplay here is that as an appointee, there's a negotiating process. There's the appointee, and then there's the bureaucratic interests of the organization that it's dealing with. You can be talking about the DOD, you can be talking about the Department of Agriculture, but they're disparate bureaucratic interests. You will never see the Department of Interior gang up with the Department of State um, to try to push the appointees around. It just doesn't happen. And another thing that you see over time, I'm sorry if I'm boring people with the minutia of American government, but um, when I came into DOD, there were a bunch of Bush appointees who had done what we call burrowing, which happens in every administration. And this is where someone who was a political appointee gets a career job. Um, and when the Obama administration ended, the same thing happened. And nobody likes it, and we all complain, because you have to deal with someone who was just on the other side of the table. But the fact is that it happens with every administration is in its own way a check. It's one of the things that keeps a certain level of bipartisanship within the agencies. Um, so I do think that if Donald Trump tries to break the basic rules of the institutions, he's going to continue to get pushback. But I don't see that as fundamentally undemocratic. Um, and also, there's no unified position. Again, he, could, uh, he can keep pushing around state all day long, and it's very sad to see him do it. And the Department of Interior does not care about it. Yeah. Could I just follow up on this? Yes, yeah, sure. Um, I think if you watch any government from afar, you tend to see unified action behind institutions. If you have a closer look in any government, in any state, it's more likely that you will find divisions among institutions that you didn't think were there. And um, for anyone who's interested about the security, the deep state in Egypt and the security and so on, there's this, this book that I, you know, I've been teaching by Hazim Kandil called Soldiers, Spies, and Statesmen. It traces back conflict and rivalry between different security sector uh, components in Egypt, between the military and the police and the um, intelligence and so on. So again, it is not that there is a necessarily a deep state with uh, one concerted mind and goal that kind of goes after a president. Usually, you have those are institutions, um, and not only in the security sector, other sectors, institutions who live off implementing the rules of the institutions. When you come as a president, and in your disregard for rules, whether they are the broader rules of the democratic game or the rules of the institutions, you antagonize every sector in a state, it is no surprise that they will coalesce in order to push you back. So I want to bring in some questions, otherwise we're going to 
face popular resistance quickly. Talking about institutions, um, I was interested to hear you guys talk about how the institutions will push back because they have been pushing back, of course. But um, it's interesting to see how, you know, with a guy like Donald Trump, who does want to push and find weaknesses, that he does find weaknesses. Like, evidently, we would benefit from a uh, law that says, you know, the president elect should. Uh, put his business interests in a blind trust rather than just a tradition of them doing that. Um, so I'm wondering if you, you guys, um, particularly uh, Nadia and Esadin, if you see uh, any things that Trump is kind of leading towards that maybe you've seen in Egypt and Tunisia um, that he might push against later on and weaknesses that he might find that we could preemptively strengthen. I mean, I don't know, I don't know if I, if I understand correctly and again I think Tunisia maybe here is not a good um, fully a, a good comparative because um, we don't have yet strength, strong institutions and um, so but the clearly the comparison that comes to mind here is the that you have a sort of kleptocratic family and dynasty that is that is um, grabbing power and uh, I mean this these scenes that we see now with his daughter and old family that are sharing businesses and business interests and power. This this seems very very familiar uh, to any Tunisian have, having fought against um, the rule of the seven families in Tunisia that was that were basically patrimonializing politics and and handling the country as if it was their private property. So that that seems very familiar in terms of how you fight this back, I don't think Tunisia has any lesson right now to give because we're still building institutions and rule of law and we're very far from having achieved it so far. So um, I guess we would rather maybe be a counter example. Like this is, this, is, this is what happens if, you know, government and business interests get mixed up so closely, uh, you get a revolution, but I don't think Oh, the U.S. is there yet. Well, institutions are, are quite resilient, mm -hmm. and I don't think they need much help from outside. Uh, bureaucracies um, are very difficult to control by elected officials in normal circumstances. The ability of elected officials to actually administer change is limited. And you know all the literature about the principle, uh, the relationship between the political and the bureaucratic shows how difficult this is. The U.S. has a, a particular is a particular case because of the political appointment system that enables the elected to kind of penetrate the administration better. But even that doesn't address the issue completely. Now, institutions protect themselves, not necessarily the democratic idea. They protect their interests, their purview, their jurisdiction, their rules, and so on. And they, you know, they have a myriad of ways of doing this. And the easiest one is is not, and none of them is is direct insurrection or insurgency. Most of them are drowning the elected officials in details and time and committees and procedure that are interminable. So yeah, my worry is not about the institution's ability to kind of resist. It's about the purpose in which they use this ability. Because that happens, because institutions primarily defend themselves. Um, but I feel like your question is sort of what we can do it begs the question of who we are, um, and uh, I feel like this is a good one for Ben. 
What can the people do <laughs> so to both keep the institutions honest and also keep them strong? Right. Mm -hmm. So there's um, been a fair amount of discussions amongst folks working within this administration, people who've been hold held over and um, trying to decide whether to keep their jobs, whether to leave, how to resist. And one of the things that um, has come out of many of these discussions is that there will be many folks who stay within the institutions. And some of them will want to protect the institution as an institution irrespective of whether it defends democratic ideals or authoritarian ones. Um, but there are others who will stay in who, who want to protect democratic ideals and they will need allies on the outside. Whether it's for advice, um, as they might normally do under, under a more democratic um, uh, leaning sort of head of state, um, um, or to leak information legally, um, or just for moral support. Um, it, as you can imagine, being a being a um, democratically minded bureaucrat under this in this administration is would would test your your will, one's will, um, um, and sort of thirdly for individuals who are in government who decide a red line has been crossed and they might want to leave and resign they'll need some sort of support. What to do next, um, to have some space and opportunities to reflect on their experience within. Um, so they're, they're, these are a number of ways that, that folks outside can be allies to those in government who, who um, for some period of time, want to protect democratic ideals and institutions. Um, do we have some other questions? Yeah. I think one of the things that comes up multiple times in this uh, sorry in, in this conversation is a divide between the normative and the political and the strategic so one being what you just said which is the sort of strategic goal of doing something which can be adopted by any side left right center so on and so forth and the second being an active task of political articulation or polit winning the political idea battle and I'm just interested in knowing what you think, if there's anything from the Tunisian example or the Tunisian national reconciliation process or something like that, which could help us think in a more nuanced way yeah. about that process. Thanks for asking this question, because like listening to the conversation, I was, I was actually thinking, I mean, we are, we are talking a lot about institutions and this is important, but uh, let's not forget that this election in the US was about um, identity and who, who are we as, as Americans and, and uh, who do we think deserves to be included or excluded from the political community and um, I mean then I would like to hear more uh, of what you think on that based on your experience of activism also maybe I'm wrong but it seems to me that at least from the leadership of like the, the progressives and the Democratic Party this is not at all addressed. And one of the big examples is the fact that, you know, they didn't choose Keith Edison as the new chairman, but they went for the safer option, meaning they're just not learning the lessons from, from, their, from their failure. Um, and um, I, again, I just, I just don't see any, any beginning of an attempt to reply, to, to address this question of identity and of bringing 
bringing, articulating a sort of a dream, an alternative dream to the Trump nightmare that, that is not just about rules and institutions and survival, and let's wait and strategize until the next election, but like actually articulating a new, a new positive uh, view of our identity. And uh, Tunisia, in a way, in a very chaotic, messy, fragile way, spent three years in the National Constitutional Assembly trying to address this question. And um, a number of people on the Tunisian left, liberals, progressives, were angry at this process. They thought, why don't you just gather 20 constitutional experts in a room and in three weeks you'll have a constitution. Why are you wasting time in deliberating about you know, every word of the preamble, defining who, who is a Tunisian? And I think that this is a, a great success of the Tunisian transition, that we actually took the time and the risks because it was a very messy, uh, crazy historical process. But uh, of, of all these years of debate and dispute, something uh, good and fragile came out of it, which is a sort of compromise, a collective compromise about who we think we are. And yes, it's still divided. Yes, we'll still, we will still have a lot of fights, but a number of these divides were actually put on the table and debated about you know the degree to which we are like Muslims or liberals or Mediterranean or North African or African or Middle Eastern or Phoenicians or whatever. This was all thrown on the table and the answer is very, if you look at the preamble, it's basically sometimes a juxtaposition. So constitutional experts are like, oh, but this doesn't make sense. How do you adjudicate? Are you Phoenician or are you Muslim? And how do you have, but the thing is we talked about it and we yelled about it very much, but at the end of the day, it was an attempt to produce a normative uh, view of identity. And um, I mean, I have in mind the fact that this is clearly a very you know, tricky comparison, Tunisia and the US, and, but so my point is not that there should be a constitutional assembly in, in the US, but, but that this, this issue of identity and moral, moral morality is, seems to be completely uh, evaded, and uh, I see this as, uh, as just um, um, another, a, a postponement of, of this problem for the next elections. When thinking of some of the strongest reactions to to this the, the shift in the U.S., there there are some communities who, that have been thinking about these these questions for for a long time, right? They they t tend to be largely communities that have, have suffered, right? Um, they've the communities that have been dealing with police brutality since since their ancestors were dragged here in, as slaves, right? The communities who are immigrants who have, who have been you know dealing with with living um, without full legalization and, and such. Um, but then there's also a large community of, of folks tend to be to, to um, not be minorities who are, who are sort of newly recognizing that, that these questions and these tensions exist and that they're having a, a, a direct and material impact on them for the first time. And so many of the discussions about how to move forward, who should be the chair of the DNC, where should the Democratic Party go, how should citizens react, there, in a certain, there are multiple camps, but um, much of the energy driving some of those institutional decisions are from people who um, who haven't necessarily felt or spent the same amount of time really struggling with some of these questions yet. Um, so one response to that is for those with, who in the majority, those with power, 
we need to take a step back and actively create space for whether it's African American communities or minority or immigrant communities or others who have been struggling and, and directly feeling um, these tensions for a long time to take the lead and to suggest um, next steps and, and um, uh, responses to some of these questions. And I think that that ability of folks on the left um, who are in the majority to, to step back um, is, is and encourage other leadership and other ideas is, is, a, is a struggle that is, um, is ongoing. And I don't think many, uh, it's not happening as much as, as perhaps would be useful. Well, another, I hate to be the dead horse here, but the United States is just really big and it's mm -hmm. decentralized and it's, that includes our party system. Something that I've, I've heard this in, in foreign responses to the DNC election, you know, look what happened. I want to be like, look, it's not actually that important. The DNC is not all that powerful an organization. What's powerful is local democratic parties um, from the town up. And I think it takes a while because we have this system. It's not that I, I disagree with them, but I think that we actually have more of a history um, of people articulating this town to town uh, in their own little assemblies and figuring out, okay, what is the problem that we're having in Des Moines? What is the, what does it mean to be a moral, you'll, you'll, to an extent that I think people are not willing to acknowledge, the question of what does it mean to be a moral person from central Iowa comes up sometimes before the question of what does it mean to be an American? Um, and then these people come together and hopefully it coalesces into an idea. Sometimes the, the negative outcome of that, which I think we need to be careful of, is that there can be uh, a um, smothering out of minority voices and we need to be very careful about that. Um, but if you're not hearing a clear articulation of the moral position from Tom Perez, don't worry about it that much, is what I would say. Um, lots of people are not just waiting until the next election, but what they're doing, they're doing what they can very locally. Do we have maybe one more question here for somebody? So I, I have a question um, that ties both your intervention but also your perspective. I wonder why you framed uh, the conversation uh, earlier in terms of um, uh, political parties and uh, the asymmetry between the parties. And, uh, and then Nadia, you made the point about responding to the crisis uh, in political terms, uh, forming uh, basically an ideology. Uh, but I wonder why uh, you think that this is the answer uh, when the problem appears to me to, of being systemic and systemic about not ideology but about governance about individuals, uh, citizens, um, questioning the structure uh, of power, how politics is done. Not just in the US, but the same in France and in Italy and in Spain, the emergence of uh, these uh, alternatives to the system. And Trump is not a member of a party. Uh, why do you think that a good answer is providing uh, uh, norms, a vision, a political agenda, when the animal that we are confronting um, is actually anti-systemic, is attacking the institutions. He's not proposing a platform that is uh, resonating with one party or the other. Actually, Trump was both Democrat and Republican, and he swings whatever side you know, uh, suits his goals. And I feel like in Europe also, uh, we see an erosion of uh, consensus of political agendas. Uh, you can question the fact that, yes, these political agendas have uh, lost their appeal. But in fact, there is an issue that is systemic. 
So why the answer needs to be political? And in Tunisia, wasn't that precisely taking away some ideological component that actually was part of the recipe of the uh, solution? Precisely because, as you said, Nada was able to renounce to some of these ideological claims and the other party as well. So why do you think that it needs to be political? Why don't you think that actually we need to address governance issues, uh, re-changing re the system? Well, sure. Um, so, I mean, I... I I agree with, uh, with what you say that part of it is uh, the distrust in uh, how the political institutions uh, function. But um, I think that the anti-system discourse is a political and ideological discourse that has to be that has to be um, fought in by making institutions work better and people understand and relate better uh, to these institutions, but also by articulating a discourse of a sort of normative, comprehensive views that, that actually um, appeals to people. And when I, I, I don't mean by this like an ideology with a set of doctrines that, that people accept or reject, but um, I mean, Trumpism or Lupinism or whatever is, is, is not just a rejection of a system. It's also a worldview about identity, about inclusion, about Islam, about xenophobia, and um, you can't you can't uh, reject or fight a struggle against this this worldview that is uh, highly problematic with just having a very you know low key pragmatic discourse about you know rules and institutions. Um, people want to have something that is more than that. Yes, they want to have a good system, they want to relate to institutions, but they, they also, like the, this, someone used the, the, this acronym of the, in French, le brave, le plus rien à foutre du politique. And this, this phenomenon is, is not going to work just by making, giving people, uh, you know, a more, a, a more inclusive, um, strategy and better relation to institutions. I mean, that's just my, my view, maybe, but I am fully convinced that people are, are seeking something more that is like a comprehensive worldview. Can I add to that? I feel that the anti-system sentiment is also about the distribution of wealth. The people are not happy with the distribution of wealth. Yeah. And when it comes to the distribution of wealth, immigrants and refugees and minority groups comes in. So that's where I feel it ties with the issue of identity or ideology. But it's a lightning rod. What you're saying is identity is a lightning rod. That's exactly what I was going to say. Yes, so finally happy to disagree. <laughs> it is not about identity. I think reintroducing identity is falling in the same in the same trap. It's a question of governance and it's political. It's because governance is about politics. It's about distribution of resources. Identity is just, it's a, it's a camouflage for this. So ultimately, and I don't want to talk about the US now. So on, on Egypt, frankly, the majority of Egyptians I know couldn't care less about the definition of an Egyptian and, and how the government will define and how the government think of religion and the public spaces. No one cares. Is how are you going? to close the gap or reduce the gap between rich and poor? How are you going to give the poor a hope that they will get out of poverty someday? How are you going to fix education? So on and so forth. It's about making the state work in providing services in governance. This is what it's about.
And if I may add, uh, it's a failure of the institutions to address this issue. Exactly. That leads to identity politics, which are the only one to float in any time of crisis. Identity politics is always a fail-safe option. That doesn't mean that there's a solution. It's political. Let me have the last word. I think identity politics and economic issues are resolvable, uh, whereas ideals, are, when, when you're fighting over an ideal, it's a much more difficult situation because there's no compromise on ideals, whereas you can recognize different identities and you can, you can find a solution and rationally discuss uh, um, economic issues and distribu distribution of wealth. But when you're fighting about the absolute good, and each one accuses the other of being the absolute bad. I mean, in the establishment of, of being kleptocracy and crony capitalism and all that. So, so it's both sides that are fighting over, over, over a moral, moral high ground in which there is no place for both in, 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 a, in a way. So that, that's more, 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 more dangerous. So uh, I, I suppose Sarah's solution is to leave it to decentralization is, is far Well, I'm not. More. Just as fun. What ideals do we disagree on? And I have skin in this game. To, to try it a little bit more specifically, beyond being an American, um, I have close relatives who voted for Trump. I'm from Trump country. Um, we do not fundamentally, I, I agree that what you're describing would be very dangerous, but we don't actually disagree about what the ideals are. We just do disagree about the interpretations. Yeah. And everybody's trying to twist a little bit. And that's what gives me hope, because we've done this before. So an American ideal, equality. What does that actually mean? You know, if we had a equality camp and a non-equality camp that was willing to stand up and say, I'm a non-equality camp, we'd be in real trouble. But it doesn't work like that for us. We all, we, you know, we're, we're arguing, I won't say quite at the margins, but you're both accusing the other of being against equality. So one side is saying that the other is against equality, and the other side is saying it's a kleptocracy, and and and, um, uh, and, and there's no and yeah. there's no so so you're fighting about if you're fighting about equality, and there's no compromise on on equality. There's always a compromise, though. What's the we're having a disagreement about definitions and facts. We're not having a definite disagreement about the fact that a kleptocracy is a bad thing. Right. And that's where yeah. we can come together. And, and you don't think there's disagreement on identity with regards to, at the local level, on um, uh, undocumented um, Americans or illegal immigrants or immigration? or Doesn't that play a role in the definite, like where at the local level it becomes an issue of identity? I think there's an idea of who is really, I don't want to step here, I do think that there's a, I don't want to be wildly optimistic, but the fight over who's really an American, who gets to count, is as old as America. Um, and I won't say that it's an unbroken slide upward, but we've done okay for ourselves. Part of the fight that I have, say, with my grandmother is she's like, oh, these undocumented, they're going to come America, they're going to change us, and I'm like, I think of this person, I'm like, Grandma, you know, we're, we were poor as dirt Irish immigrants. <laughs> I know that one gets dragged out a lot, but there's a time when we weren't American. Um, but you don't want to talk about that. You don't want to remember that. But sooner or later, a couple of generations in, and again, I'm not saying this is an unbroken thing or there isn't a true prejudice, but 
people change their definitions of what it means to be a Demo to be an American functionally because it's just easier. So we're we're just after seven, so we'll have, we'll have to wrap up. But I think one of the one of the things we've we've seen in the U.S. over the last six months is that there's many of these conversations are now happening out in the open, right? Um, and you know there there are many negative side effects of that. We're seeing to uh, many people are experiencing directly negative side effects, but um, we're having these conversations now with cousins and relatives and 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 folks in a way that we haven't in the past. And so I I like to think that that is a, a positive note that people are much more engaged in the U.S. outside of just elections in governance in politics and discussions of identity and and what does it mean to be an American. So so hopefully we can we can continue those conversations in a nonviolent way, um, both here at Fletcher and 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 elsewhere. Um, and so th thank you for for joining. Hopefully we can have another conversation like this um, here here at Fairs, maybe on a future podcast. Um, thanks so much. Thank you.